Amen. Please be seated. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Kirby Woods. A joy to get together, to worship, to hear a word from the Lord as we open it together. We've been studying the New Testament book of Acts for about a year now, on and off, with a few breaks for a few series in between. And I looked, and we're in the 34th sermon today of this book since we began chapter 1. And just so you kind of know where we're going, my plan is to take another break once we conclude the third missionary journey of Paul, which is going to end around Acts 21, and, uh, and then we'll do something else after that. But today, we're in Acts 17, 1. I would encourage you to go there. Um, today's text is an interesting one because we're going to see Paul have two really different responses in two different cities, Thessalonica and Berea. In fact, I almost entitled this sermon a tale of two cities, but I wanted to prevent myself from breaking out in song or thinking about guillotines, which now you all are. So, uh, but it really is a tale of two different cities within uh, these, these cities, different responses to the gospel, different responses to Paul. One of the other themes in the text that I want to key on today is a line spoken by opponents of the gospel in Thessalonica in Acts 17.6. They shouted out, These men have turned the world, what? Upside down. Now, when you hear that line, you may think to yourself, how do I, how am I to receive that? How does that strike me? I think you'll see as we study it that it was meant as an insult when they said it. It was to be taken as a bad thing that Paul and the crew had done. I think every Christian needs to consider their response to that statement, because in many ways, it's going to reveal something about you. Perhaps you hear that statement that Paul heard, hey, this guy's turned the world upside down. Everywhere he goes, there's trouble and division. And you might recoil and think, no, that's not me. That's not my intent. I'm a nice, respectable Christian. I don't cause any trouble. In fact, you wouldn't even know I was a Christian unless you asked me or or." You just happened to notice my smiley face or you saw my occasional charity work on Facebook. Many Christians long to live in a society where they are simultaneously respected, allowed to freely practice their faith, and are, receive no pushback. There may have been a time that was possible, but it's not today. And it's certainly not the world that Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy encountered as they went to Thessalonica. So we need to be prepared and able to apply the gospel to any context. And we can't let the reception or pushback dictate whether we are faithful to that task. Some contexts, like we're going to see today, will require in-depth reasoning and debate and time. Some contexts are going to require endurance, dealing with people who are hostile to the gospel. Some contexts are going to just receive the gospel with eagerness and excitement. Sometimes you get a Thessalonica. Sometimes you get a Berea. But the point is, we have to do what God calls us to do regardless of the situation. So my hope is that today, when you hear the phrase, you Christians want to turn the world upside down, that you would hear that and say a hearty amen. May it not be said of us that we came and went with no discernible impact on the world. May it not be said of Kirby Woods that Memphis and Germantown were unchanged, completely right side up, 
completely comfortable following the course of this world and that we just made it our ambition to go along and get along. No, our goal should be to boldly proclaim Christ and apply the implications of the gospel to our city, just as Paul and Silas did in Acts 17. And if it turns the world upside down, well, maybe the world needed to be turned upside down. So let's have a brief word of prayer as we go to the word. Lord God, we pray now in this moment and for this moment that you would help us to see clearly what this text is saying. God, that you would anoint my words with power and that your Holy Spirit would be moving in this place on listeners and hearts and ears. Uh, Lord, do things today even beyond my preparation. Uh, give us a powerful time of worship together. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Again, Acts 17.1, go ahead and turn there. We left off last week with Paul and Silas escaping jail via a miracle and an earthquake. It wasn't a jailbreak. They didn't uh, hide a bobby pin behind their ears or anything. Uh, no, God broke them out. And ultimately, the city officials did let them go. We read that at Table Talk on Sunday night. Uh, they were let go with an apology, which is pretty cool because they uh, revealed Paul and Silas were Roman citizens and that what they did was actually illegal. And Philippi could have gotten in serious trouble for what they did. So there was an apology and a sorry, and they let them go. So they visit Lydia one more time, they encourage the Philippian church one more time, and they move on to their next location, Acts 17.1, we'll see where they go. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. New city, and this is, uh, not, they're all important, but this one has a Bible uh, letter named after it. So I want to give you a little background on Thessalonica. Just briefly, from the route they're going, you can tell by the cities that they named, they are probably on a road called the Via Ignatia, Ignatia with an E. You should actually just look it up, Google it later. It's a really cool read. Uh, literally the Roman road of their time. It was like their Interstate 40. And each of these cities mentioned along the way, Amphipolis, Apollonia, were about 30 miles apart from each other. So Amphipolis, uh, 30 miles, Apollonia, 30 more. Uh, Thessalonica, about 30 more. So you add up all the change, and it ends up being about a 100-mile journey uh, from Philippi to Thessalonica on this major Roman-constructed nice road. Thessalonica, a big city of the day, estimated about 200,000 in population at the time. That was big for then. Uh, the second largest in Greece. And ironically, it, it's still around today. Did you know that? You can go visit it today. And it's got the same name, kind of. Thessaloniki or uh, Saloniki, if you're a local. Uh, but it's still the second largest city in Greece today. Uh, connected to the Aegean Sea, it's a Gulf port city, so it's on the water. And a really cool piece of info that I learned studying this week, uh, fun fact, if you will, Thessalonica in the past sided with the Romans in a battle that occurred at Philippi. As a thanks, as a Roman gesture of thanks for taking their side in that battle in the past, um, when Rome got to power, they remembered that. And they granted Thessalonica the rights called a free city. They were called a free city. Um, in 42 BC, they got that status. And that meant that Thessalonica had special privileges to govern themselves. They elected their own leaders. They ran their own government. They got to do their own culture. 
So they got something that others did not get, and uh, which made them more Greek than many other Roman-controlled cities. So really a unique place. If you read uh, the book of First and Thess- uh, Second Thessalonians, a lot of people don't know this. I, if you've been in church forever, you know this, but many people don't. What's going on in Acts, right, that we're reading today, corresponds to the letters that Paul wrote to the places that he sent them to. So when Paul talks about when I was with you in First in Thessalonians, he's talking about this. This is, they're overlapping. The letters of Paul and the journeys of Paul often overlap in the same context. Some people don't know that, so that's good to know. So we're going to pick up now and read through verses 2 through 4 and see how did they respond to the gospel. Verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women." First stop in the story today, we see Paul, number one, reasoned with the Thessalonians. He reasoned. I got three R's for you today. He reasoned with the Thessalonians. So we need to be sharing the gospel with people. We say this all the time. I'm going to say it again. And I want you to know I'm supportive of any training method that is biblical and gets used. All right? People ask, Pastor, what, what kind of training method for evangelism do you prefer? I'll tell you what I prefer. It's biblical and you use it, all right? Pretty much anything else I'm fine with, all right? Roman road, EE, three circles, Evangel cube, four spiritual laws, something else. As long as it's biblical and it gives you the confidence to get out there and actually talk to people, I'm for it. There's my official stamp of approval. But I want you to see sometimes the situation is going to call for something beyond the initial pre-prepared lines. So let's see what Paul does. Verse 2. He keeps his custom of going into Jewish synagogues as they're available. Uh, Thessalonica has one. They have a Jewish presence. It seems a pretty big one. And so we see Paul was with them for three Sabbath days, which means three weeks, right? That means he was there for three Saturdays in a row, and uh, which means they must have invited him back at least twice. Uh, For the record, he was probably dealing with Gentiles during the week and Jews on Saturdays. So, What was he doing on these Sabbaths? Verse 2 tells us he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. It's important to look at that line. He didn't just reason with them, didn't just play their Greek games and do rhetoric and academics and philosophy. No, he used the Scriptures. But he also didn't just read the Scriptures, didn't just stand up and open it and and read it and say, what are you going to do? No, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So the Greek word for reason used by Luke is dialegomai, which is not the word for preaching. It is not one-way communication. It means to converse, to dialogue, to have some back and forth. Uh, It's not really a debate, but it's like a mutual discovery where you can follow up with points that are made. You said this, that's interesting. Can you explain that? What did you mean by that? It's a little bit of that back and forth. Clarifying questions can be asked. And for the record, that's kind of what we do every Sunday night 
at Table Talk. Can I get a shameless plug for myself? Is that okay in here? Uh, every Table Talk at 5 p.m. Sunday night, it's not a one-way sermon. In case some of you wonder what we do, it, it, I do not re-preach something completely new. It's a time to have some back and forth with our people. Now, I don't want this to sound like I'm tooting my horn. I'm not. Toot, toot. I'm not doing that. Or the collective Kirby Woods horn, which, uh, which is a good, a good horn for the record. But no, that's not what my intent is. But this practice of standing up before your people and subjecting yourself to Q&A is not common in churches. Uh, and it's not common because it can expose you. It can expose you. Uh, Sunday school teachers, let me see you with your hands up. Sunday school teachers. All right, you know what I'm about to tell you is true. When you prepare your lesson, the part that makes you prepare extra is not that lecture portion that you're going to say. It's that potential that someone could ask you that question, that one follow-up question that makes you think. It's what pushes a teacher to prepare above and beyond. It's why it often takes teaching something to really learn something. It's what lets people know also you're not just plagiarizing or parroting the latest curriculum or sermon that you found online. When you have to go off the beaten path and go with the flow of a living, breathing discussion, that's when you find out if you really understand the topic or not. So Paul goes in and stands up in front of this synagogue that he's never been in before, and for three Saturdays in a row opens up the Old Testament to the Jews in Thessalonica and says, come, let us reason together. Verse 3 says more about what he meant by that. He says, we get some words here, three words, explaining, proving, and proclaiming. These are all what I think it means to reason. So in Greek, explaining means simply to open up. He opened it up. Proving means to set it in place. So in preacher talk, we might say he was setting the table and landing the plane. With his Old Testament in hand, he walks through and reveals all the proofs that a Jewish mind would need to hear their Messiah uh, had to suffer, die, and rise, because that's what Jesus did. And so he's trying to show them, if I could show you from your Old Testament that your Messiah was supposed to suffer, was supposed to die, and was supposed to rise, and then I can tell you this guy in Jerusalem just did that. 10, 15 years ago, maybe we got something here. So that's what he does. At the end of verse 3, we see Paul says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you. There's another word. After explaining, opening, after proving, which is kind of pressing and uh, settling their views, there's a proclamation. Now, that word simply just means to announce. I'm just telling you what it is. Uh, so think of the four words here that are used to describe Paul's sharing of the gospel. We've got four words in this text. And it really hits several facets of communication. Someone needs to write a, a paper on this in the Christian communications department. All right? Reasoning hits the person who needs their questions answered. Let's have some dialogue. Explaining hits the person who just needs information. You need, need more, to know more. Proving hits the person who says, I need evidence. Prove it to me. And proclaiming hits the person who needs a bold witness for someone to just tell them what it is. So Paul's willing to give them what they needed for the sake of the gospel lodging in their hearts. He did not go in with one plan 
and say, whether you like it or not, here's what you're going to get today. He read the situation and he gave them accordingly what they needed to believe. Look at verse 4. It says, some of them, meaning Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. That's a good day, isn't it? That's a really good day. Not all the Jews believed, but some did. And, and a huge number of God-fearing Greeks, that means Greeks that were kind of exposed to Judaism and understood who Yahweh was, big mess of them believed. That's really where he cleaned house. And then a lot of leading women did. We know from reading historical documents, these cities had a lot of women in high aristocratic places. So he got to them too. What Paul did in reasoning was blessed by God. In fact, this church, the Thessalonian church, ended up being one of Paul's most beloved churches, if you read the letters. Um, And in time, historically, the church at Thessalonica had a reputation in church history for being one of the strongest doctrinal churches, nicknamed the Orthodox Church. Now, I believe this is in part because of Paul's willingness not just to stand on the street corner and preach a one-way message and then go to the next town, but to commit himself to weeks of dialogue with these people, often on their turf. I used to love, it hurts me now to say this example, I used to love watching Ravi Zacharias on YouTube. And to go to college, he would go to college campuses and he would stand in front of a hostile crowd and actually take Q&A from students who rallied to come and try to defeat his points. Now, he didn't finish well in ministry, but it was an amazing thing to watch someone willing to do that. I love a documentary called Collision with a pastor named Doug Wilson who committed a, a series of debates with Christopher Hitchens. You know how scared people are of Christopher Hitchens? And he went in and debated him for weeks and weeks and weeks on end and held up the Christian position. I respect Ray Comfort. You ever watch Ray Comfort videos on YouTube? Speaking to people on the street about their faith? You just go up to someone and engage them in a conversation? There's a pastor named Jeff Durbin who has videos speaking to Mormon missionaries. He'll even go outside abortion clinics and speak to very hostile people. He'll go into Christian, uh, he'll go into houses and senates and and speak about Christian legislation. It's an amazing thing to watch someone willing to subject themselves to that kind of open-ended forum. So Christian, let me ask you this. First of all, can you give the gospel in a canned 30-second elevator speech? Could you do that? If, If I said, tell me the gospel in 30 seconds. Could you do it confidently? So look, I'm not here to beat you up. If the answer is no, that's the only thing you need to do this week is to get that right. Start there. Use use the tracks. Use the pre-prepared trainings. Use all of that. Get your your gospel basic 30-second, one-minute, five-minute. Get those down, okay? But let me ask you additionally, Christian, can you do what Paul did and offer not just a presentation, but a reason for the hope that is in you? Can you dialogue about your faith without crumpling like a Popeye's biscuit? 
can you explain? And can you prove? And can you proclaim? Ask yourself that question today. Can I reason, explain, prove, proclaim? Can I do those things? Can you wield the sword of the word skillfully, artfully? You know, Ephesians says the word of God is our sword in this world. The word of God is the what? The sword. Okay, Kirby Woods member, I don't want you just to have a sword. I want you to be an elite fencer with it. You ever seen somebody in a movie, you know, they give the little kid, the little King Arthur kid or something, and he, he hands a sword and he doesn't know how to use it? I don't want you like that out in the world. I want you like those French fencers, you know, on guard, precision, knowing how to do like it's almost like a dance, like an art form. I want you to have a confidence that you are equipped and empowered to proclaim Christ, reason with people, apply bold truths to any situation. So that's the first part of the story in Thessalonica. I would say it went pretty well so far. However, in the book of Acts, things change quickly. Let's go to the next part and look at Acts 17, 5 through 9. It says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down and have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Oh, you be sure they got their money. All right. We will see next, Paul and Silas reasoned with the Thessalonians. Secondly, we're going to see they were reproached by the mob. Reproached by the mob. Here we see a scenario that we haven't seen this for a few chapters in the book of Acts. This aggressive response from the Jews in town. Uh, in this case, we see verse 5 that Jews perhaps, they didn't have the numbers on their own to do what they wanted to do. Maybe they just wanted to keep their hands clean. They go find some thugs to do their dirty work for them. My translation calls them wicked men of the rabble. That's good. NIV says bad characters from the marketplace. That's okay. The best is the King James. Lewd fellows of the baser sort. Oh, that's good. You know, contractually, you need to lift your nose when you say that and say it, it differently. Lewd fellows of the baser sort. That's really, that's how it's done, just so you know. Um, these were bad dudes that would do anything for a quick buck. That's, that's all they are. Uh, the, the Jews put them up to this. They create havoc in the city, and they get a mob looking for Paul and Silas. So one unfortunate Christian, you feel bad for this guy. You're like, who's Jason? I don't know. He took, seems like he took all the pain from this situation. Jason and some other unnamed believers get caught up in the search. The mob, they can't find Paul and Silas, but they can they can find Jason, so they pull him and some brothers out before the city authorities. And here comes the line, it's coming, that's shouted to the mob, uh, by the mob, to the Thessalonica city officials. I want you to notice three accusations that are made. They're going to be, I got three sub points on every point. I just realized that today. Man, 
Didn't even mean to do that. Three accusations made by the Jewish mob against the believers. Okay? First, they shout, these men have turned the world upside down. That's accusation number one. Clearly, the reputation of Paul and Silas uh, had traveled. Otherwise, that's a really strange thing to say for somebody you just met. So it seems like they knew who they were. The reputation had grown. And they, uh, this, this phrase, upside down, it's kind of a strange Greek word uh, that they're trying to figure out how to say it. It means they've unsettled things. They've taken things that were smooth and settled and in, in a nice little wagon wheel rut, and they just messed it up. They just turned it upside down, okay? Now, if we back out and we think about what Paul and Barnabas did on their first journey, or now Paul and Silas on their second journey, serious question. Are these guys primarily political agitators? Is that what they've been doing? Have they been doing that the whole time? Have they led a military revolt? Are they talking to all the labor unions and going around saying, you guys should really think about going on strike? Are they doing that in every town? No, they're not doing that. Are they doing anything immoral? No. What are they doing? They're preaching. They're debating some. They're reasoning some. They're baptizing. They're teaching. I mean, they did upset a, a magician. That'll always get you in trouble. Or uh, some slave owners that had the demon-possessed girl. Those are two things that happened, but, but that's it. And all the places they traveled, that's it? That's what turned the world upside down? Let me ask you a question. Have Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas done anything on these journeys, answer carefully, that you're not supposed to be doing today? Have they done anything on these journeys that has nothing to do with your command from Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them? No. Okay. What does it mean? It means if they're being criticized for turning the world upside down and you're supposed to be doing what they're doing, dot, 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 then yes, we can make the case we should be turning the world upside down too. You could also make the case that whatever the world considers to be upside down has no moral bearing on what should be right side up. Who made the world the ones to decide what up and down is? You ever think about that one? The money changers selling their goats and lambs and pigeons in the temple at exorbitant rates had a good thing going until Jesus came in there and flipped tables. But was Jesus wrong for upsetting the order and turning things upside down in the temple? Was he wrong? No. So just being the ones to turn things upside down does not automatically mean you're in sin. Following Jesus and actually living for him will rock the boat in life. It will. There is no way around it. Christian, let me ask you a question. Could anybody accuse you of turning the world upside down? How about rocking the boat? How about tipping the canoe? How about sloshing the bathwater? Anything? We only get one life, one world. Our commission is not to leave it more lost and pagan than we found it. No, it's, it's to make it more Christian than we found it. And that may mean to turn some things upside down. That was the first charge against them. You turn the world upside down. Secondly, what did they say? Well, they, they charged Jason with harboring Paul and Silas. You're harboring Christians. 
it seems like in his home. I think Jason is the Lydia of Thessalonica. We don't know anything about him, but he received believers and he stood on trial in their behalf. When they couldn't find Paul, they heaped their reproach on Jason, who they could find. They couldn't find Paul, so they persecuted Jason. Christian, listen, here's another point for you. People hate God, and when they can't find him, they come looking for you. Christians end up taking a lot of angst that people have, not toward you, but toward God. They can't put God on trial. They can't persecute God. So they persecute you. Jesus said that this would happen. We should not be surprised, but we should be ready. The third charge against them was that they were acting against Caesar by saying there's another king named Jesus. I mean, what do they say to that one? You got me. Guilty. We even sing songs about it. I mean, it's true, right? They said that. I hope they said that. Did we sing it today? Mitch, where are you? You in the room somewhere? Where are you? I know you're somewhere. He bore a cross. He wears a crown. Lifted to the highest place. Name above all other names. Through earth and heaven, let it resound. He bore a cross, but he wears a crown. We sang that today. Did you sing it? Guilty. Every single one of you. Guilty. That's what they said. That's what they said about Paul and Cyrus, Silas. From the apostles to Christians in the early church today, we recognize, we recognize our governors and presidents and kings and Caesars that are over us in government. In government. We're not anti-government. Christians should not be anarchists. We should not be anti-government. However, there should be something in the heart and mind of every Christian that says, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is reigning not only of the universe abstractly, but over the world and over every country and over every state and over every city and every church and every house. See, I think we're so quick to say that we're not a political religion or that the gospel is bigger than politics, which it is, which it is. But then we rush right past the reality that we often say other things that have massive political implications, and they roll off our tongues every single Sunday. We don't only say Jesus is king. We don't only say Jesus is Lord, do we? No, we say he's king of kings. We say he's Lord of lords. We say God is sovereign. You know, that's a, mo a monarchy phrase when we say that. We say Jesus is the judge of all the earth. Every dictator that's ever lived is going to have to stand before him. We sing, I love this line, were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Do you know, you know what that means? Do you know what we sing? If I owned the universe and I could somehow give the universe back to Jesus as an offering, it would be an insultingly small offering. That's how much he owns that's what we believe about Jesus. When earthly leaders hear us say those things, to them it is a political statement because if Jesus is king, they're not. Why did Herod try to kill the little babies? Why did he do that? Because wise men came 
looking for the king of the Jews, and it wasn't Herod. Look at verse 8. When the people and the city authorities heard these things, they were disturbed. They were disturbed. Listen, basic Christian theology is disturbing to those who are challenged by its implications. So things are obviously heating up in Thessalonica. The Christians there felt like the best thing to do was to send Paul and Silas on to the next town. Jason is like, I'll take the heat. Let's send, let's send our guys to the next town. So we've seen thus far, Paul reasoned with the Thessalonians. They were reproached by the mob. Number three, we're going to see they were received by the Bereans. Received by the Bereans. We're going to read Acts 17 next. 17, 10 through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. We'll pause there. Berea is about 50 miles from Thessalonica. It's a bit more off the beaten path. You might call it a mountain town, but there was still a good population there. The first thing Paul and Silas do, again, they go inside the Jewish synagogue. Immediately in verse 11, we see Berean Jews are different than Thessalonian Jews, according to Luke. They were, quote, more noble. Now, that's a weird way to describe somebody. I had to look that one up, all right? Technically, the word noble in Greek can mean of high birth. It can, what we would call the, the nobility. But I also saw that the word had a connotation over time that meant you were generally more open, tolerant, and generous as a person. So you, you kind of acted like a, what a high society person should act like. They were supposed to be uh, true of people born into nobility, this character that they had. It was supposed to be higher character. Now, what I think that this means is that they noticed pretty quickly that this Berean crowd uh, wasn't going to be the, the kind that shouted at them, wasn't going to be the kind that um, dialed up a mob against them. So they sat in their opera suites and their little glasses, and they clapped politely at the end. That was the, the Bereans. There are three more words that I would use to describe Bereans. All right, I got three Three different descriptions of the Berean Jews, okay? First, in verse 11, they received the word with eagerness. Eagerness. They were excited. They were passionate. There was a willing response by the Jews. They were what every teacher and preacher hopes for. They devour the message that Paul and Silas bring, while at the same time respecting the messenger. Sometimes this will happen in life. I pray it happens to you. Quick story um, that I had to learn a lesson one day. I remember years ago, that's maybe 10 years ago now, I don't remember, but I got a call from one of my close friends who'd been sharing bits and pieces of the gospel with his friend, who I also knew, but it was more like an acquaintance, acquaintance to me. And uh, this mutual friend that he was talking to did not come from a church background. I think his parents might have been culturally Catholic, uh, but... He was very friendly toward church and Christians, uh, but he had never made any kind of profession of faith, never really got close. He just kind of lived. Uh, so 
my close friend texts me and says, hey, I'm meeting with him tonight at Starbucks, and I would love it if you could come by and really just present the gospel clearly and seal the deal and, and, and maybe be ready to answer any questions that he has. And so I say yes, of course, and you know, throughout the day I'm prepping, I'm going over and over the verses that I want to share, and I'm predicting a question, you know, oh, you'll, you'll probably say this, and so then I'll be ready, and I'll say that, um, you know, and then if he says, yeah, but how do I know the Bible's true? You know, I'm kind of brushing up on my canon discussion, you know, and he's like, well, what about all the evil and suffering in the world? I'm like, all right, I'm going, I got it, I looked it up, okay, I'm just mentally going through it, getting ready. And so I arrive at the Starbucks, and we all exchange pleasantries, and then we just kind of get into it, because that's why we're there. And um, I get the gospel in there pretty quickly. I open up Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That was my choice that day. We're going to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and just walk top to bottom and say, what does this mean? That was my plan. It says, we're, in, we're dead in sin. God is rich in mercy, sent Jesus By grace, you're saved through faith. It's not a works. You can't boast. You can't claim it. It's done by him. Through faith, you get it. And in the end, our goal is to walk with him and walk in works that he prepared for us. And so he looks up from the Bible and says, yeah, that sounds good. I believe that. And I was like, oh, you do? Just like that? And he said, yeah, I want to be a Christian. I think there's nothing I can do to earn this. I need Jesus to save me. I know I can't earn it. I want to do this. Can I just tell you in that moment, I almost had to talk myself into it that this could be happening this easily. I almost felt like it, it, couldn't, it couldn't be genuine unless there was some kind of experience where we're going back and forth with, you know, like the Thessalonians and uh, Paul is debating and reasoning and proving. And I got to, man, we, have an, we got to at least have five meetings, right, where we get down to it. But just to experience somebody simply receiving the truth was something that I had to learn is actually possible. Does it happen every time? No. But biblically, it is possible, and we need a category for that too. The Bereans received the word with eagerness. They were excited. They probably said, Paul, thanks for coming. I wonder how many times he heard that. Thanks for coming. Thanks for crossing all those rivers and streams and mountains. The last line of verse 11 says what they did next. It says, they themselves examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's really cool. They didn't require Paul to prove it to them, and they didn't wait till the next Sabbath. They met every day. That's right. Jews on a Monday. That's a great band name if anybody's out there looking for a band name. They met every day, and they opened the scriptures And they studied things that Paul told them. They looked at those Old Testament references where Paul said that they testify of Jesus. There they are. And they saw what Paul told them was true. Church, the Bereans teach us something. There should be a high value placed on the ability to find answers for yourself. Perhaps the reason that they were so welcoming and noble, as Paul said, was ultimately they knew they were going to test his words anyway by the word of God once he left. You see, there's really no need to shout and make a scene if someone starts teaching something that's different than what you've heard before. Because ultimately, you should go and check their work anyway after they leave. If someone tells you a doctrine you've never heard before, 
And it may, to you, be true or false. You don't know. You need to look more into it. You don't have to scream in their face the word heresy and put two little fingers and cross in front of their face. You can say, thank you for this information. I'm going to go check this against what the Bible teaches, and we'll get back together. The Bereans were a, a Jewish synagogue saturated in the word of God, which is why verse 12 says, many of them therefore believed. They believed because of their daily search of Scripture to see if Paul's words were true. Their examination of the Scripture strengthened their belief. It didn't send them down a rabbit trail of endless, unanswerable questions. It makes sense why so many churches... You ever heard a church call themselves Berean Bible Church or something? You ever seen one of those before? That's why. That's, that they want to do that. I get it. It's a pretty good name. Now, how does the time in Berea end? Well... In verse 13 through 15, we learn that the same mob from Thessalonica makes the 50-mile journey to Berea. And they come and stir it up the city, and they, the believers at Berea think, well, we got to get Paul out of here. So they send him separately by himself, ultimately to Athens, where we're going to pick up next week. Silas and Timothy, they're in Berea a little while longer, but they do want to eventually get to where Paul is. And... I hope you see from this text today, which really spans between Thessalonica and Berea, in a short time, Paul experiences three different responses to the gospel. He saw people that were willing to believe but needed some reasoning. They needed some explaining. They needed some proving. And Paul was willing to do that. We should be as well. We saw a response of reproach and jealousy and anger as some formed a mob. They tried to just simply shut down the message and messenger and those were not misunderstandings. In fact, they were understandings. The Christians who wanted to turn the world upside down, uh, they really wanted to turn the world upside down. Jason did receive and harbor Christians in his home, and everybody did say there is another king named Jesus. So the hatred of Christians was rightly based off of Christ and the implications of the gospel. And lastly, we saw a response of reception by the Bereans. They were eager to hear the word. They had a high level of discernment and ability to study Scripture for themselves, which led them into more belief as they saw Christ in the Old Testament, just like Paul said that they would. So my hope for us, Kirby Woods, is that we would be equipped to apply the gospel to any context and situation that God requires of us, whether our task on a given day is to reason or to be reproached or to be received. May we do it skillfully and faithfully in the power of God. I don't want you, Christian, to just know a few pre-prepared lines about the gospel or the scriptures. I want you to know them so that you're prepared for anything. I want you to be able to turn things upside down, not because you're a quarrelsome person, but because Jesus requires everything to be conformed to his will. If the world you're living in is not conformed to the will of God, then guess what? That which is right side up needs to be turned upside down. Hey, one day Jesus is going to return. He's really going to turn this place upside down, even beyond what we can do here. So if that's your aim, to turn the world upside down, you're in pretty good company. Let's pray.